0: So hard, oh,
1: love, man. Trouble so hard. Don't know about it, no, Trouble with God. Don't about it, no, man. Trouble with God. Welcome to the Radical reverence Show. Uh, we're doing this show primarily on COVID. And speaking to Diana Kunz, a personal support worker who's going to talk about being on the front lines in long-term care. And also, secondly, on the show, Dr. Nili kaplan mirth primary care physician, about the situation on the front lines, again, in Ontario dealing with COVID. But before we do that, I did want to speak about the events in the U.S. last week. Uh, certainly, it's incumbent on everyone to weigh in a little bit on that. Uh, here we saw something that was as predictable as our responses to COVID, north and south of the border. We saw uh, a fascist group try to take control of, cap- of the capital. And in fact, uh, with no resistance whatsoever, it seemed. In some instances, we saw footage of police actually helping them get into the building, escorting them in, taking selfies with them. And these folk were armed. They could in fact have killed every elected representative in there. Uh, Certainly they ransacked offices uh, and on. We've all seen at least some of the footage. Uh, This was a fascist coup attempt. Let's name it for what it was and is. And it had widespread support among the American populace as well uh, of particular support among the police and clearly no resistance from any military at all. Um, The question remains truly, uh, who is in control south of the border? Uh, I think this is more than just a wake up call uh, for Americans. Uh, Unless there's dramatic ramifications, we're talking about prison sentences for elected officials, people like Ted Cruz, uh, the president of the United States, who we all know is going to pardon himself before he leaves. Unless there's dramatic ramifications, you know that the buck has stopped. And it stopped with fascism. So let's just be very clear about that and that what we're dealing with south of the border is not a democracy, not even close. So on that cheery note, let's move on to COVID on the Radical Reverend show. As was our topic last week, we're going to be talking about the topic it's as if there isn't any other topic that people want to talk about it and, and who can blame anyone because of course we're living in the middle of somebody described it as a horror show um, but, but we're certainly living in the middle of a pandemic and um, I, I watched the movie Contag- Contagion uh, a film from a few years back that was eerily, eerily accurate in terms of what we're now experiencing and of course in Toronto we're the epicenter of of that in Ontario and one of the epicenters in Canada. Um, Our stats are looking worse uh, pretty much every day Um, and no uh, place is is worse than our long-term care and last week of course we had Dr. Vivian on uh, talking about it and others Um, but this week I wanted to speak to somebody who's really been on the front lines and the frontline staff in long-term care residences are personal support workers, PSWs for short, um, and they're the ones that do the day-to-day, everyday uh, work of helping residents, of feeding residents, <laughs> of doing what's necessary for residents, and there's no better eyes on than them, and I'm so delighted to have as our first guest today, uh, Deanna Kunz, who has been a personal support worker for many years, is now retired. She's going to tell her story about coming out of retirement to help out in this crisis, and and what she found when she came back. Uh, so, Deanna, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. It's it's really wonderful and and very courageous of you to be on. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So let's start with. Um, you said you were certified in 1988, so quite a while back. And um, your initial experiences were pretty good, I, I gather, from um, from working in the field. Tell us about that. Well, uh, I
0: worked at a home in Bob Cajun. Uh It was then owned by the family. Um, it is now taken over by Sienna Living. Um but back when I worked there, I started off as a nurse's aide. then um, I upgraded I went to school, got certified um, training was both theory and practical, and as well, I worked at the home it was a uh, just a totally different environment, a different vibe, if you will. You could tell people were there i mean i I was sort of I. Back when, you know, we still wore white uniforms and white pantyhose and white shoes, but we were all proud to put our cap on. It was, uh, it wasn't just a job for us, you know, wasn't just a job. It was a calling, if you will. We were there for, this is what we wanted to do.
1: We weren't just there for a paycheck.
0: And it's different now. I think it's different.
1: So it's interesting that you say that because I was, uh, my first term in uh, church ministry was in the country for a couple of years and uh, a farming area. And I noticed that long-term care there was very different. Um, Smaller, more intimate, um, more direct contact, residents got more hours of care every day. Um, Very, very different from when I moved back to Toronto after that country stint. do you think this is partly rural-urban, or or do you think it's about the ownership?
0: It's the ownership. If you'll remember, um, during the first wave, Pinecrest um, Nursing Home was one of the first ones to come out, and they are in Bob Cajun, just down the road from where I was working. So there was 29 deaths there, and that's a 67-bed facility, also owned by Sienna Living. So, I do not think it's a rural thing. We have outbreaks all over the all over Ontario, all over Ontario. As of today, we have two hundred and twenty outbreaks. Whether it's resident, a resident that's positive or a staff member, it makes no difference. It spreads. And Mary Lee Fullerton can do and say all she wants to minimize it but it just doesn't fly with us it doesn't fly with those who know those who are scared those who are anchored and know that you don't have to have a phd to recognize just the complacency of this woman
1: we were uh, you were also part of the demonstration at tender care which happened last week and got some coverage, which was good. There seems to be a kind of full court press in the mainstream media to to shine a light on long-term care, but there doesn't seem to be much action from the government. Um, People have been calling now for the Red Cross and the army to come in, um, but there's no action. Uh, And and my thinking is because when the army did go in, of course they found a nightmare, um, is that this administration just doesn't want eyes on the situation. But at TenderCare, there were stories of, you know, residents calling 911 for food, people oh dehydrated, um, you know, uh, and not just at TenderCare, but we've heard stories from other facilities, people have had a bath in a couple of weeks, things like that. Um, so let's get back to you, though, and I'm speaking to Diana Kunz here, who is... A worker, um, personal support worker, has worked uh, and is now retired uh, in many um, different facilities. Uh, Tell us, you came out of retirement. Um, Why did you do that to go back in?
0: I remember after I seen actually the Pinecrest footage on TV and Doug Ford uh, came on. It was one of his one o'clock afternoon briefings and was calling out for retired nurses, healthcare workers to come out. So I, that's what I did. I mean, I hadn't worked for probably about 10 years. And, um, but I had, like I said, two skill sets that I had available to me to help out in the long-term care sector, whether it be in the kitchen, like dining, dietitian, or as a PSW. And um, I, I, I went for it. I, I had to. I could not just sit home and, and watch it, what, was going, what was going down. And, you know, you brought up a good point about, about tender care and the military. This is my question to the government. They called in the military when the military actually came to Eatonville the day before I did there was at that time 42 deaths there are 64 deaths at tender care that was that's the latest number i have so where where is the military my personal opinion they're afraid the merc- the per- or military is going to see exactly what has not been done what has was not promised to be done uh Over the summer, regarding staffing issues and staffing issues are huge,
1: huge. Yeah, tell us about that a little bit, Deanna, because I remember back in my, when I was uh, MPP, and and this has been an ongoing issue, right, is like the number of hours per resident per day. Um, and I remember, um, some staff back then saying, you know, I'm, I could be bathing somebody and I could be hearing screams down the hall. And what am I going to do? I can't let somebody drown and, and run like that kind of horrible situation. Um, but, but you're, you've been in the field. What, what did you experience and and what did you see when you went into Edenville?
0: Oh, oh my goodness. I, um, I could tell that when I was taking care of of residents, there was bed sores that were open and weren't even cleaned. Um, it, it it goes beyond. It goes beyond. Um, it, you know, the the whole system is fractured. I mean people are afraid to say things people are not working efficiently the infection prot- uh, protection and control is almost non-existent from what i've seen
1: you see more about that because we've all seen the photos that i think came out of the oh my you god know, the first time the military went in of, 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 of staff wearing plastic bags you know um Yeah, not enough PPE. Um, What did you see in terms of that? Like, what about the equipment?
0: We were short on gowns. I brought my own masks in. I ordered them, literally. I ordered them on Amazon because we were told we could only use one mask a day. I thought, I don't think so. Because we'd be working and sweating, our masks would be wet within an hour. But some people were afraid to say things.
1: What would happen if you said something?
0: Well, they didn't listen very well. It was, you know, they just kind of nodded. And I remember when I first started there, I worked a week before one of the other, my coworkers let me know, there's a responder hotel that you can stay in for free. Nobody from the administration had told me that when I first started. So I here I was coming back and forth for a week to my home, to my family. I mean, I was cautious and careful, of course, when I came in through the door. But I did not even know about this responder hotel till a coworker told me. A co worker, not administration, when they hired me. I but the first day I seen a bed sore where there was a it was an actual skin tear the size of a toonie. And there was, it wasn't even clean properly. There was feces inside it. It was just deplorable. Like, uh, So, I, I mean, be it yet being my first day, I went to the church nurse and reported it. And she just pointed me to the bandages and I, creams. And I said, well, which cream? Like, which one for this, for this patient? Because I still wasn't... Um, familiar with with daily the daily care plans of the residents right i didn't know what were, what creams were to be used on who and but it was just everybody was uh, there was a lack of team morale there was people were just frantic it, it was just a frenetic atmosphere
1: Part of the problem that, that has been pointed to is, of course, you know, family, close family members have not been allowed often in. Um, to So those most important eyes on not to mention the, the mental health aspect of not oh. being able to see. Yeah, maybe speak about, about that and keeping relatives away policies.
0: When I was there, no family were allowed in whatsoever. People were looking in windows. I'd never seen anything like that in my life people were we were to treat everybody as if they had covid there was no signs on the doors no there, there was no con. One, from what i could see the containment was it was just lacking and but there was people in such decline if they weren't dying of covid they were Dying of depression, not eating, not.
1: It was, my God. And you were there after the the army went in, right? I got there a day after, one day after the military stepped in. So, with all the you know all the news that came out, the horrendous news that came out, did you see that administration made changes there?
0: I don't think, you know, I left. You know, I came a day after the military and I left. I was told that I was no longer needed a day after the military left. Um, Thank God they were there. But we were still short staffed even with the
1: military there. Okay, so you were there when the military was there? Yes. Okay, got it, got it. Okay, right. Um, Yes. Yeah, so, I I mean, they reacted with horror, as you probably saw in the reports on it. Um, Yes. And when you talk to them, I mean, what what were some of the things that you heard from them?
0: Uh, I've seen a lot of people shaking heads and people I think were horrified. I mean, there was a report that there were actual military personnel that were deployed at that time that had PTSD from this. So you can imagine what the healthcare workers and PSWs and RPNs and RNs go through, and they've been going through this for a long time. That the thing is with the pandemic, it's only showing people; it's only opened up to everyone what's been going on for the past two decades since what nineteen the mid nineteen nineties when Mike Harris took charge of that and got chart chart well going and. I like I said I don't know all the bureaucracy but I know some dates and I know that PSWs the healthcare workers have been dealing with this long before long before uh pan- the pandemic came about long before covid and even back in the late 1980s the nursing home that I worked at we had a pandemic response manual everyone does so it's not new I mean we had a pandemic 100 years ago the word pandemic's been around for 100 years it's not new there's manuals but this place or for-profit places
1: just don't seem to have them and if they do they don't adhere to them And so testing, let's talk about testing. I mean, you said you were told to treat everybody as if they had COVID. Um, Did you always know who had COVID or not? No, actually. How often was the testing done?
0: I had my first test May 28th. I started in April. I had my first test May 28th and the next one in June. Testing. What testing? The place that I volunteer at right now, I get tested twice a week, every Monday, every Thursday. And you can't get in the building even just to volunteer unless you can show them your negative results. It's a it's 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 a polar difference. It is just a polar difference.
1: And is, is the place that you're working at now? Is that um what is the difference in terms of management there? I mean are they for profit or
0: They are run by the city of toronto i It's not far from me. I don't want to say the name because I don't know if I'm allowed to but it's it is um one of the uh ten homes owned by the city of Toronto. That being said the what I see there what i one of the huge things that i i've seen happy staff you know i've seen staff that were on top of things i've seen residents that are happy to talk to you and when I because i do social visits social visits and i do uh, um meal assistance people i see um And I deal with residents that they don't seem depressed. They know what, there's some that know what going on, what's going on. And they miss, you know, going to bingo. They miss going to the gift shop. They miss the art shop. But I know they're still, they have this wonderful volunteer program. And they're getting mental stimulation. They're getting mental stimulation, which was, absolutely it, it, it was not there at, at Eatonville, or i'm assuming any of the other four or five homes that the military were at
1: so quite a difference between profit and, oh, and not huge yeah huge and and what about you like i from you know you're you're working in the field it's a demanding job um when you were at the, the you know for-profit place um uh, I mean, were you, were the staff getting danger pay? Were you getting a, a lot more than you normally would get as a PSW there? What what because I, I don't I think one of the things that people don't get is that you're not particularly well paid either for risking lives. So I mean, if you don't mind divulging, like what is the sort of average hourly rate of a PSW?
0: The average is about $18 to $19. Um, I know that at Chartwell, the last I seen, they were paying $15.99 an hour. Rivera was just over $16 an hour. Um, And during the second wave, they're supposed to be getting, Doug Ford had promised a $3 an hour wage top up, which many have not seen. During the first wave, uh, Justin Trudeau had put in a, a $4 an hour Wage top up, but it took a long time to get that. I didn't get mine till in August, and I mean, people were waiting. We, there, at one point, there was three hundred and seventy-five thousand healthcare workers in Ontario waiting for that because it came as a separate pay, right? Waiting, still in August, July and August, it was just unbelievable. And the pay the pay is, well, it's like they said, there's PSWs who are hired through agencies, which I will not work for, but they were going out to two and three different homes just to make ends meet a week until they said you can only work at one healthcare facility at a time.
1: So in other words, If they were asymptomatic or hadn't been tested, they could be carrying COVID from one place to the other. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. This was going on at Eatonville, too. I had an RPN tell me that
0: that the uh, director of care was hiding um, information about um, staff that were positive. So people didn't know if the person they were working with, if they just happened to be off, if it was their day off or... They didn't know if if they were off because of of COVID. Like I mean, I wasn't there long enough to to uh, have personal contact with other nurses or healthcare workers. Um, everything I heard from them was on the job, but people kept in contact with each other, and they were finding out stuff. They were finding out on their own. I just tested positive, but the administration was not letting them know.
1: And there have been deaths of PSWs. We we we've been. Oh we, yeah. We, I mean, press has been focused, of course, on residents, but but they're not alone in both being infected and dying.
0: In the last week, there have been two two deaths. One yesterday, and then one on uh, December thirty first. A PSW in Windsor, uh, which was a home. Uh, that was owned by Rika Homes, which is the, the uh, for-profit company that owns Eatonville. And um, yesterday, the RPN that, that passed was um, for Mississauga uh, in a home owned by Extended Care. And I mean, these were hardworking women. They were women of color. They were hardworking, hardworking. They were mothers; they had children. I, I, I just don't understand why this lag and and this weight in vaccinating the homes. This, these, these deaths all could have been prevented of, of our our PSWs and healthcare workers. They could have been prevented. And, This is Canada wide. I mean, I think there's been up to date 14 healthcare workers, probably more by now. But if people think that those that go to work and wear a mask are protected, no, they are not. They're not. Just read what's going on down in the States. Over
1: 2,000 healthcare workers to date have died. Yeah. We're talking, by the way, to Deanna Kunz, who is a, um, a personal support worker, came out of retirement to help out and uh, and found herself walking into what best can be described as a nightmare uh, in for-profit care. And you, you touched on something, Deanna, that I want to highlight, too, is that, of course, most of the, the workers in long-term care are women, and a lot of them are women of color, right?
0: Yes. 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 Yes, they are um the majority probably 90 percent and if i can just change go off topic for mm-hmm. a minute i would like to know i would at, like to ask doug ford and general rick hillier why they are not using um are not deploying military medics to help with the vaccination program why? There's, I know for sure they are more than able. And they're, I mean, if they could uh, put the military in five homes at one time during the first wave, why? They cannot get people who are adequate, adequately trained medics to help with the vaccination rollout. Doris Grinspan has been calling out for nurses to help and there's nurses that have volunteered i've seen it on twitter only to be turned away we have enough we have enough no you don't because if you did you know they're ramping it up now well sure they are ramping it up because it's like if i'm quoting dr vivian Stematopoulos correctly we have a government in ontario that is reactive and not proactive. If they were proactive, they would have done what they were supposed to do in the summer and get the staffing. The staffing is so important.
1: Well, absolutely, and uh, there have been numerous, uh, you know, tweets about this from numerous healthcare professionals saying, you know, I'm here. Why aren't I administering it? Um, there's uh, most of the vaccines are still in the freezer. They're not in people's arms. Exactly. And, uh, now that they're saying that this will happen by January 21st, I mean, you know, really, if we're to hit herd immunity we should be vaccinating the rate of about a million a month and that sounds like a lot but it's not i mean when you look at what they do for school kids you know um or you look at what's happening in other jurisdictions in the world um that's that could be done it could be done quite easily um we've got we've got but you know uh, again we could go on and on about that um, right um uh, Last thoughts, what should we be doing um, other than bringing in the army now? And of course we get that this is a crisis and that has to happen. Um, Probably won't, um, but it should. Um, Long-term looking down the road, what needs to happen in the long-term care sector so this doesn't happen again?
0: Um, I'm just going to say it again, staffing. They have to have staffing and they, they need to have The PSW curriculum, when they are trained, needs to include more palliative care. So there's more mental stimulation. Not, it's not just about the physical well-being of these are the residents in these homes. It's about mental stimulation too. And I know when I was trained, I mean we had required reading that we had to do. We had tests, we had essays, we had to write. It wasn't, you know, just online training. And then we had practical work that we did in hospitals whatever but I mean the curriculum the training has to change but yeah you know it has to be they have to be well paid they have to be well paid and there there needs to be permanent jobs so people have benefits so they're not you know hopping from one place to another
1: I just want to interrupt there because one of the shocking things that came out of the tender care demonstrations is that a lot of PSWs don't get sick day, don't get enough sick day pay. This is shocking to people. Shocking. So, of course, they're going to go to work just to pay their rent, even if they've got symptoms.
0: Sure, they will. Sure, they will. And if they're in a place where they're not doing adequate te- testing, they will get away with it. Or I shouldn't make it sound like they will do it if they're being tested properly. They will not get away with it because they will. They'll be screened, and it will show whether they're negative or positive. But if they're not, if they're in a place that's not screening properly, which, if you look at the first wave, that's what happened. When I got to Eatonville, there were eighty-eight staff off sick.
1: Well, yeah no, I wish I, I would love to speak to you for had another half hour, uh, but we're coming up to time. I've been speaking to Deanna Kunt's, um personal support worker. I am so sorry on behalf of everyone that you've cared for. Uh, I'm so sorry that you've had to experience this. And, um, and what we're asking our, our staff, people like you to do, is absolutely unconscionable. So even though the government won't apologize to you, uh, I will. Um, thank you so much for what you're, you're doing, what you've done, and uh, um, and thank you for doing it with very little recompense and uh, certainly in surroundings that are far, far from ideal. Thank you, Deanna.
0: Oh, thank you so much. And I just want to, one last note. Uh, there are a lot of us that are out there, as you've seen at Tender Care, that are, we're getting, we're angry. Um, We want to support families um, and we want change. We're getting together. We're getting loud. We're getting, we're going to, and I thank the media for their coverage. But um, like I said, this is a government that is reactive and not proactive and there is power in numbers and there are a number of us getting together and nobody knows the power of numbers like politicians, the ballot box. And if they they want to um, see another day in office for another term in office, they better listen to us. We have demands. Absolutely. Thank you.
1: Welcome back to the Radical Reverend show. And again, thank you to Deanna Kunz and uh, the PSW I just spoke to and for being so forthcoming and uh, just her heart wrenching story. I'm going to go to another frontline healthcare worker right now uh, with somebody who's active on Twitter. I I follow her and you should do. It's Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth. Uh, she's uh, a general practitioner, a family doctor, also an anthropologist, and also co-host of Rx Advocacy. Um, uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Kaplan-Murth, to the Radical Reverend Show. It's wonderful to have you on. Um, you. Let's talk, um, first of all, about um, a statement you made, which I found really interesting. We're, we're all about vaccines now in Ontario, obviously, in um, in the fight against COVID. And you said that not only were public health and primary physicians kept away from the vaccine conversation and administration, but um, that you were excluded. Uh, and you were excluded from being part of it, that you weren't welcomed in at all. So talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, so so yeah, it's not it's not just that we weren't we were sort of um passively left out, but we were actually actively blocked. So, you know, as a family doctor in Ottawa, I wrote to our hospital and said as part of our campaign saying that we're ready to vaccinate and there are 15,000 family doctors across Ontario and um so even if only a fraction of those stepped forward to help, um there are many and there are many nurses and pharmacists as well. And when I wrote to the hospital, the response that I got was, um, well, we can only have staff who work in the hospital carry this out because you're not insured outside of the hospital. So that's a layer of bureaucracy, really, because, I mean, I I could apply to to have privileges in the hospital, but um, they could also just waive those requirements, which is what they had said to us at the beginning of the pandemic when they were basically communicating with us daily saying... We might need doctors who are family doctors, we might need gynecologists, we might need dermatologists to go and work in the ICUs and intubate people if, if we run out of, you know, uh, people uh, who are already working in the hospital. So, you know, we were panicking back last March literally rewriting our own wills, because we were watching our our colleagues dying in Italy and dying in in the state of New York. And we were worried that um, they were saying that doctors would have to come out of retirement to help work and nurses would have to come out of retirement. So we were all kind of ready to go if we had to. But then it comes to the vaccine rollout. And the province made it only the jurisdiction of a certain number of hospitals, all of which are in urban uh, urban centers, and um, so that excludes anybody in a rural area, and it excludes anybody who doesn't work in the hospital. And you know, so as I said, you know, fifteen thousand family doctors across Ontario who would be the very people who have relationships of trust with our patients. We are also the ones who know who are most marginalized and vulnerable patients are when when we're given those lists that are published publicly about you know here's phase 1 here's phase 2 like you know I know in speaking to my own patients who are first nations in in mt that nobody is going to contact them because nobody has them on their radar when when they say that um you know they're going to go into long term care and prioritize long term care but then they'll only do the immunizations in hospital there's a large number of people who aren't who aren't going to be immunized they don't even have retirement residences on their radar they haven't thought about all the people who have disabilities who are living in congregated living settings so you know i have patients and and, and i've strongly advocated for them in throughout because they also had difficulty going to get covid tests you know if they couldn't go and in those, um, you know, days where there were long lines waiting for for people to have COVID tests, how are my patients who have um, five children and they're a single mother supposed to go wait in a line? Or how is my patient who has um, physical or um, mental health uh, reasons that they can't go and do that supposed to go stand in line? So it's it's been. It's been constant advocacy saying, we know who our patients are, we have relationships of trust with them, and there should have been some engagement with primary care and with the community in order to have a plan in place for getting this vaccine out. As a family doctor, I cannot expect to get a vaccine I was told until sometime after March. We are we are phase 2 if we're doctors who are seeing patients daily and my pediatrician colleague and I, you know, we we sort of laugh because like we are the ones who are there with these little kids who come in and they tear off their masks and they sneeze in our faces. That, for me as a family doctor, also happens when my geriatric patients come in. If they have early cognitive impairment and they're coming in and, you know, they're continually taking off their masks and, you know, and I'm giving them injections that they need or I'm speaking to them, um, I am at risk. And my own family doctor's office just announced to us that they have had to close their office because somebody in the office has covid and, um, so, you know, and I mean, I take care of 1500 patients, I think in their office, there are more family doctors. They probably take care of more like, uh, you know, five, six, 7,000 patients. So we, we need to be immunized. We're not just doing phone calls. We're seeing people every day. Um, but also I fear, I, I fear for the teachers who work down the street from my office and, you know, and so when, Like we got a communication this morning saying that uh, that the immunization, the COVID immunization has been the sole jurisdiction of the province and General Hillier, you know, gave it to the hospitals and the conversations that um, happen behind the scenes is that public health tells us that not only have they been excluded from um, participating, but there's nobody who's even appointed as a leader for running this in the community, there is no plan, and I mean that makes me feel quite um, crazy because you know you see these public announcements saying, "Don't worry, we've got a plan. We're going to have everybody done," you know, in Ottawa by July or in Ontario by July, and then you hear in the in the actual rooms where where they're discussing, um, you know, well, how is this going to happen? They're like, well, you know, a dozen family doctors and some public health people sitting around scratching their heads, literally scratching their heads and saying, okay, well, who's going to take the lead on this? And, you know, it's it's not okay that like 34 public health units are only now starting to identify primary care leads. Like, why is it January 8th? And we're only now, and and the reason that public health units are only doing that now is because they haven't been given the mandate to do it until now. And um, And still, when I reach out and I say, you know, my 93-year-old patient who lives in a retirement home, when he moved into that retirement home, I remained his doctor. And that was my uh, contract with him, basically. He and his wife moved in and they didn't want to move in if it meant that they were going to lose their supports. And that included family medicine. And I promised them I would continue to care for them there. And, um, you know, I reach out and I say, well, I would like to be able to at least be part of a team that goes into his retirement home. Well, the Public health unit doesn't know which doctors work at which retirement homes. They have no record of that. Uh, They have no way of making it possible for me to go and give that vaccine because the communication I got back was, um, no, the hospitals decided they want to keep hold of it. They want to do it themselves. And um, so they're going to arrange with the paramedics. And then, you know, the, the heads of family medicine are saying, well, this is outrageous. Why aren't you engaging family doctors? You know, we are saying we are literally saying we are ready to work 24/7 and um and we're being told no no thanks but no thanks and um so yeah like it's developing protocols for how to get out to long-term care and retirement homes and to reach patients with disabilities and um to reach our indigenous patients um like all of that should have happened at the very beginning and 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 by the very beginning I mean like that could have been happening even before vaccines were on the ground because we knew that this was going to be necessary right so there's it it's it's systemic like there there's there's this kind of um top-down approach that is the province giving only power to within a hospital then everybody works in their own silo the hospitals here in ottawa the royal ottawa hospital which is a psychiatric hospital that doesn't have any outpatient um admissions they have not I think admitted any patients since March, if I'm um, correct, and they don't do any emerge. There's no um, reason that every every person who works in that building was offered the vaccine, but you know the people who are doing inner city health have not been offered the vaccine. So it it just it, none of it makes sense, and and the lack of planning, the lack of organization, and the lack of transparency is extremely upsetting, and um, you know, if we're saying that we need to vaccinate 90,000 people a day in order to reach the targets that we're talking about, well, we have 110,000 vaccines sitting in a freezer that haven't been used in Ontario. And at the current kind of rate that we're immunizing people, we're not going to be done till December 26, 2026. So, what is true? How do we, you know, how do we reconcile those those very different kind of messages? And how do we reconcile that, you know, um, publicly our our um, uh, message from you know Doug Ford today is uh, well. There's going to be a wake up call, and that people start have to start being responsible, and people have to start making the right decisions, and um, the average person has to start listening. Like, how can we under how can we hear that and and not think to ourselves, well, but you left big box stores open for people to go shopping sprees before Christmas, and you left bars open, and you left um, gyms open and you are still letting people gather, 10 people outside. And you know, you you keep saying schools are safe, but we know that 34% of our schools in Ontario have had cases of COVID and on and on. So it 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 just it it is um it's so dizzying and so um soul crushing when I walk to my office and I pass a cafe and there are people sitting inside that cafe and they're drinking coffee and sitting with their laptop computers as though it's, you know, 1999. Well, Maybe they weren't doing that back then. I don't know. But, you know, as low as, as though it's 2019, let's say, Mm -hmm. and, and, and not as though it's 2021 and we're in the midst of a crisis. There's, there's no news that is going to be surprising to anybody in healthcare that is, you know, Um, we have been saying all along that this is the trajectory that we're on and that every day that we delay, there are more deaths. And if 4,000 people die in, you know, the last month and another 6,000 are going to die in the next month, it's like, I mean, that is exactly what we predicted and it's going to continue unless some sort of substantial change happens.
1: Yeah. Um, Speaking uh, here on the Radical Reverend Show to Dr. Neely uh, Kaplan-Mirth, uh, just about being on the front lines in this epidemic. Um, and a couple of things came out, uh, out Dr. Mirth, when you were speaking. Um, first of all, today I watched Hillier on the news saying that they're running out of vaccines. Uh, but you had mentioned that there's 110,000 plus sitting in freezers. Um, and, and he's also said that, you know, they're going to get everybody vaccinated in long-term care uh, by January 21st. Um, uh, So this is the Moderna obviously um, getting out. Uh, I also have a nurse friend who said that, you know, things went kind of swimmingly at UHN this morning in Toronto, you know, vaccinating people and they, but they also got the message we're running out, we're running out. Um, What do you say to that? Because for for somebody on the outside looking in, there's two different messages here and and certainly yeah. you know I'm hearing from from frontline healthcare workers like yourself that um that it, there's there's vaccines sitting in the freezer we're hearing from the federal government tens of thousands are coming into the province and they will be week to week to week but we're hearing um from hillier that no no it's not true uh, what's up
2: so you know, I mean, it's funny because even though I'm a family doctor, I also feel like i'm I'm on the outside looking in because that's the way we've been kept and i I mean, you know i I know that the data is that fifty six percent of what was received in Ontario has yet to be used um, but you know if like if we just look at the numbers of people who need to be immunized to get to that eighty percent of adults who've been immunized um how can we do 90,000 people a day if we only have about 110,000 doses right now? So yeah, there's a there's a definite disconnect. Um now I am also on the outside with respect to like, you know, well, when are the next shipments gonna be coming in? I, I don't know. I'm not privy to that information, but um it, the the worrisome thing is that um is that there is no plan for how there, you know, if, if they were meeting with us two days ago, scratching their heads in public health saying, well, how are we going to, how are we going to actually do this in long-term care? How are we actually going to immunize everybody in long-term care? And then they come back, um, a couple of days later and they say, oh, well, okay. The hospital has decided that they're going to use paramedics. And, um, we're like, well, yikes, you know, you're, you're still, you're, you're continuing on, on the same strategy that, that hasn't been working. So, um, now the University Health Network in Toronto is, um, is a different story and, and that's one of the things that is um, frustrating is that it is piecemeal because also I think in London, Ontario, they've had ways of involving family doctors in getting the vaccine out to long-term care. So why is it so different from one place to another, one region to another? Like if there are 34 different public health units and those health units are all blocked from participating in the planning, and so, instead, it's just up to the those um, the small number of hospitals and those hospital networks. Uh, then it's going to work in some places and not work in other places. But like our population um, is getting sick and dying, right? And our schools are you know closed for even longer. And um, the most marginalized individuals in our communities are not. Even on the radar, so um, there's. I, I don't know what the answer is to the question of, well, you know, is there going to be more vaccine available? And um, the question that that I I would pose is, even if there is more vaccine available, if there's still no plan, and they're only just now trying to develop, you know, they're only now nominating physician leads for communities to say, okay, yes, you can be responsible for making sure that we that we target all of the all of the long-term care and retirement homes and congregated living settings um, you know like it's just this delay means more deaths and and more suffering because it's not just the deaths and you know that's also when we look at the statistics every day when we look at the numbers every day um, that did not take into account all the people who had covid who continue to suffer because of long kind of covid symptoms so um, all of, the, all of the, what we would say the sequelae of, of having had an infection, um, it's not just death, it's also significant illness, so yeah. Yeah,
1: again, uh, spot, uh, talking here on the Radical Reverend Show to Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth, um, co-host of Rx Advocacy, which I want to get to before we leave this uh, discussion too, and to talk about that, but also a family physician and anthropologist, Um, on the front lines of our healthcare system, which is clearly showing some strains and not working very well these days for a lot of people in the midst of a pandemic. Um, It's telling that a general, um, not a doctor, uh, not a medical person, a general was put in charge of getting this out. Um, And yet uh, Ontario Health Coalition has called for the army to go into some long-term care places with outbreaks, and they haven't been called. So, I mean, I I, I just kind of hold that out there. Uh, I, I was at one just this morning, it's freezing cold in Toronto today. Um, One that's a nonprofit uh, uh, place, which I visited many times in my political career and uh, was one of the better ones, Uh, but apparently because of a bill that Ford passed, uh, the workers only have a 1% increase in their pay a year, so they can't get anybody to work there um, and endanger their lives. And, and like many long-term care places, I'm going like, to use this as an example, it has a retirement residence attached to it. Right. So, so the retirement residence is not getting the vaccines, long-term care is long-term care has a huge outbreak as if the the residents next door isn't going to be also interacting in some ways shapes and forms um so i mean it just it 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 just was the perfect it's the perfect storm really and um and it's it's replicated as you know uh, across the province so maybe say some more about that
2: well i think that the um i think that the idea of um the idea of um, like military being sent in to long-term care is part of this only being able to to imagine um, military metaphors, which has been something that I've actually struggled with throughout the pandemic. I don't actually like being um, referred to as frontline because I'm not a soldier, I'm a caregiver. I'm a family doctor who, you know, I do a lot of advocacy for my patients. Um, but, but it's like trauma informed care. It's, you know, it's, um, holding onto people's stories and knowing, you know, that I take care of a grandfather and, a, and, a and, and, you know, the next generation down and, there, and then the great grandchildren. Like I, I'm taking care of multiple generations. I'm taking care of newborns. I'm taking care of my oldest patient. She was over a hundred. I, I, Um, I don't like to think of this as being something that needs to be military, but we won't think outside of the box. We won't step outside of that. And that, you know, so when long-term care facilities are um, in such dire straits and um, for nine months, I didn't hear a word actually responding to all the um, lists that I put my name on saying that, you know, if, if some. If some facility needs my help, I'm there. I, I will happily go and and do, uh, you know. And, and it wasn't until the the tender care um, uh, facility, you know, and, and then and then one other one last week reached out and and said um, uh, we're looking desperately for doctors, you know. And I'm like 500 kilometers away from Toronto, so you know. Uh, but the um, but why why does it? Um, like how does that unfold why why would it be that um, that it's only when people are are banging on windows saying that they that they don't have food or water that um, then they're like oh wait actually I think maybe we do have some family doctors out there like you know there are there are many people who are trained health professionals um, but we we leave it until it's this crisis point and then we have to call in the military you know and um, and it just um, and it, and it's self-perpetuating because if, you know, next week they announce, oh my goodness, it's a crisis. We're like, uh, yeah, it, it's been a crisis all along. So uh, there were things that we could have done preventatively. There are things that we could have done proactively and we didn't. And um, and so then, I mean, all we're left with is, all we're left with is the military. Um, and, um, and that totally um, disregards this incredible community of healthcare workers. I, I mean, that's why, um, as I'm sure you know, like I reached out to the prime minister's office and, and we're organizing a panel where I've got healthcare workers and um, community advocates. So doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, midwives, pharmacists, um, advocates for people with disability, advocates for long-term care and essential caregivers coming together, together across Canada to talk about um what keeps us up at night, and what you know, if we had one thing that we could do, what would we, what would we do to make this, you know, better? And and that's why I started the podcast with with um, my friend Ariel Troster. RX advocacy was about reaching out to other people who are, um, particularly to women, because our voices aren't often heard as loudly. Um but reaching out to other people who are doing all kinds of advocacy and 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 we've interviewed teachers, we've interviewed doctors, we've interviewed nurses. we've interviewed uh, a lawyer who works advocating for women who are in jail and and what is what is life like in jail right now for people in terms of covid and you know, um, we've spoken to somebody about um, LGBTq health issues uh, during the pandemic and we 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 don't hear those voices. And so we decided, I mean, we'd make this podcast. Of course, it's really hard as perhaps, you know, I don't know. But I mean, we're, we're you know, doing this off the sides of our desks. I have a full-time job as a family doctor. I'm working 60 hours a week. Um, Ariel also has a full-time job. We both have kids. We both have other things that we are juggling. But getting getting that community advocacy, Vivian Stamatopoulos was one of the first people we spoke with, and, and Dr. Jennifer Kwan was another person that we spoke with early on and um, you know getting getting their voices um, heard to, to talk to them about why why they saw the need to advocate and the reason that we all see the need to advocate is because we can see that um, there are so many gaps and there are so many ways in which we're letting down community we're letting down seniors we're letting down women and children and we are not invited to the table we are not invited to be on the vaccine distribution, Committee, we are not invited behind the scenes.
1: Uh, Thank you for that. I'm going. We don't have many minutes left. Uh, I just want to ask you, um, because you brought it up, and because I think it's really interesting. What is the one thing? uh, Again, I'm speaking to Dr. Dilly Kaplan Mirth here on the Radical Reverend Show. What is the one thing? Um, that you would recommend to the Prime Minister, to the Premier, to whoever has power uh, to possibly make some changes here? What is the one thing, if there was one thing that you have learned that you would recommend, um, we do differently? What is that one thing?
2: That one thing would honestly be to sound a little corny, but it would actually be to work together. And that's what I've been saying since March, that we have to step out of our silos that uh, when I'm advocating as a family doctor, I am advocating side-by-side side with nurses and they are advocating side-by-side side with teachers and we are all saying the same things and we all know the stories of, you know, which child needs to be able to go to school because it's the only meal they're going to get and we all know which patient is, is you know, the highest risk and isn't going to be identified and we all know, um, you know, the our ability to just, Pick up our 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 you know our medical bags or our nursing bags or our midwifery bags. We know how to get out there and and reach the community and get things done, but we're not ever um, invited to the table. And and this getting out of the silos and working together would require that we let go of the bureaucracy. And that happened. That you know it, it can happen, but but it but it hasn't happened on the kind of scale that would make a real difference in Canada, like across, its not just Ontario, but across Canada, that is what we need to do.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I, again, speaking to Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth, uh, follow her on Twitter for sure and on her own show. Uh, thank you for all you're doing um, on behalf of all of us. And I have to say uh, that the voices that I've highlighted too on this show um, are easily uh, accessed by everyone uh, on Twitter. You don't have to believe what you hear on mainstream media news. You can actually go to sources of folk who are on the ground, who are doing the work and listen to them. So thanks so much and have a great day. Thank you.
2: You're very welcome. And thank you.